Please turn with me uh, to the first book, Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 and 3 is where we'll be launching off this morning. Uh, during this spring, we've been uh, interspersing some messages in our study through the Gospel of John entitled, Living with Confidence in a Chaotic World. These are such uh, perilous times and things are changing so rapidly in our world and in our culture. I feel the need as your pastor to help equip you uh, with some of these challenges that we're facing really in many respects for the first time as an American culture. And I want to talk to you this morning about a very sensitive subject, uh, one in which has caused a lot of controversy. And the title of the message today, Traditional Families in Transgender Chaos. Earlier this year, there was a sad story of the Hudako family that came into the national spotlight when a California judge made a controversial decision with implications that go well beyond the courtroom. There's the headline from the New York Post, how a dad lost custody of a son after questioning his transgender identity. It all started when Ted Hudako, pictured here, uh, and his wife, Christine, walked into his home office with two announcements. Number one, she was leaving Ted. And number two, their 15-year-old son, Drew, was transgender. Ted, who is an engineer with Apple Computers, was stunned. He begged his wife to reconsider and be willing to work things out through family counseling. And Ted was also deeply skeptical of the transgender claims that his son was actually a young woman. So he delved into the research on medical transition and gender dysphoria. He learned that puberty blockers could impair cognition and diminish bone density. And if those blockers were given along with estrogen, then young Drew could become permanently infertile. But when he presented this information to his wife and son, they would hear none of it. And so eventually the Hudako family ended up in divorce proceedings. And during the case... Ted expressed an unconditional love for his son. But when he was pressed by the judge to affirm Drew's self-identification as a female, he disagreed. And because of his stance, listen to this, the judge sided with the wife, Christine, and Ted lost all of his parental rights. He's not even allowed to see his son and is unable, listen to this, to prevent the transition surgery already planned by doctors. The columnist who wrote this article in the New York Post gave this commentary. Listen to this, and I quote, Ted Hudako's custody battle provides a case study of how LBGT ideology has infiltrated family law. Judges now decide the fate of children and their families based on feelings rather than biological facts. And such is the world that we are now living in. Also this year, we uh, saw Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He sparked another national debate over the subject of gender identity and families when he signed the Parental Rights in Education Bill, or what the left has now, a.k.a., called the Don't Say Gay Bill. Now, that newly minted law, listen, all it does is simply prohibit public school teachers in Florida from discussing sexual orientation or gender identity with young students in kindergarten through third grade. It's 
really shouldn't be all that controversial, right? But Hollywood celebs, the Disney Corporation, and politician lambasted Governor DeSantis, calling him everything from a homophobe to Hitler. And isn't that the way the other side works when they don't have an argument? They just call you names. They do an ad hominem attack. They label you. They criticize you. But DeSantis, listen to how he responded. He said, quote, I don't care what Hollywood says. I don't care what big corporations say. Here I stand. I am not backing down. Now those two examples that I just gave you are similar and smaller battles in a larger war that is raging in this country against the family and against sexuality and against, yes, even our children. Make no mistake about it, the ones who are in the crosshairs are the next generation, the little ones. Now, we're going to get more into that here in a second and talk about the agenda that is afoot. But I think back about what Plato, the ancient Greek philosopher, said 2,400 years ago. He said this, The saga of a nation is the saga of its families writ large. And I would add to that that whoever owns the family essentially owns the future. In other words, what the philosopher was saying is, as the family goes, so goes the rest of the nation. And anything that is a threat to the family is therefore a threat and a danger to the nation as a whole. In one of his books, Dr. David Jeremiah makes a connection that I want you to see between ancient Rome and modern America. Here's what he said. Historians tell us that when the western half of the Roman Empire fell in 476 A.D., a large factor that led to its collapse was, listen to this, the unraveling of the family and rampant sexual perversion. He then listed those causes. What caused Rome to fall is what's causing America to implode, and notice the parallels between ancient Rome and modern America. In ancient Rome, they had high divorce rates. Today, we have high divorce rates. Half of marriages end in divorce, whether they're in the church or out. Defamation of past national heroes. Boy, haven't we seen that with the Black Lives Matter march and critical race theory and tear down the monuments and destroy and rewrite our national history. Acceptance of alternate forms of marriage. Widespread attitudes of feminism, narcissism, and hedonism. High inflation rates, government overspending, and political corruption. It sounds like 2022, doesn't it? Listen to this. An entitlement generation in ancient Rome. We're seeing that today. And then lastly, listen to this. Common acceptance of all forms of sexual perversion. Is history repeating or not? I think it doesn't take a rocket scientist or somebody with a degree to look at that and say yes. Now, I would say this. The main difference between ancient Rome and modern America is Christianity. Because ancient Rome was later transformed by the spread of Christianity. The early church grew and thrived in those conditions of the Roman Empire collapsing. But here in America, America is collapsing because we are abandoning Christianity. We are retreating away from the foundation that our forefathers have laid for us. And I want you to hear today that the family is under attack like never before. And basic definitions of sexuality and marriage are being undermined by, yes, a culture that is out of touch with reality. We no longer have any common sense. Even 
in our highest offices in the land. You saw as well as I did a few weeks ago when they had the Supreme Court Justice on the stand and they asked her, can you define a woman? And she could not or would not even address that because of an agenda that she was committed to. So I want you to see this morning that in the crosshairs of all of this is our children. And I'm going to focus in on that this morning. In this message, we're going to wade through the chaos and I want to help you devise a plan for how we can navigate through these chaotic times with confidence through what God's Word tells us. I want you to see number one as we look at this, the devilish attack on the family. The devilish attack on the family. And we begin in Genesis chapter 2. Drop down to verse 21. Let's read this together. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took out one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In other words, the beautiful bride was brought to the first man, Adam, and he saw her and he said, Whoa, man! And the name stuck. Now that's Derek McCarsonism. You can ignore that part. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now watch the transition. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, notice here in our text, Genesis 2, the first institution that God created was the family unit. In the beginning, we see several timeless truths here about marriage and family. Notice the pattern of marriage. It's one man and one woman. We see the permanence of marriage. Verse 24, one flesh. That means the joining of man and woman physically, emotionally, spiritually. We see the purpose of marriage. That's companionship. That's love. That's mutual submission. We learn later on in Ephesians 5. And then also, if we were to go back into Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we would see the product of marriage where God tells the couple... Be fruitful and multiply. In other words, have a family. The product of their love would be children. But notice in our text as we read that, that just as soon as God establishes the family, Satan slithers into the garden to divide what God had put together. Satan is always a divider, isn't he? Remember, he was cast out of heaven. And there he divided the angels, taking a third of them in the rebellion with him. That's in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4. Here we read that he divided the first couple. He brought sin. He brought disharmony between Adam and Eve. Then later on in chapter 4 of Genesis, he divides the first family. He pits brother against brother, Cain against Abel. 1 
1 John 3.12 also writes about that. And then, if we were to fast forward to Acts chapter 5, we see that Satan is there trying to divide the early church with Ananias and Sapphira. So he's a divider. Now notice the family is the basic building block of civilization. That's where it all begins. And our satanic enemy knows that if he can steal and kill and destroy the family, then he can undermine the foundation of an entire nation. And so I want you to see here this morning very clearly that the attack on the family and the biblical definitions of sexuality and marriage is the spiritual warfare of Satan on our land. He has not taken a day off. He's 24-7, 365. In fact, I think he's turned his work into overdrive these past few decades. Listen to me, church. God is not the author of confusion. Satan is an expert in deception and doubt even to the point of getting people to question the most basic definitions of what is a man, what is a woman, what is marriage, if he can get them to even doubt what their gender is assigned at birth, he can lead them down a pathway of destruction. And ultimately, he asks the woman, he says, oh, but the reason that uh, I'm coming to you is to tell you that if you eat of that, that tree, you can be like God. That's what the basis of all this transgender and, and LBGT thing is about. We want to be our own gods. We don't like the definition of marriage that God has given us. So we'll come up with our own definition. We don't like the gender that God has assigned us. So we'll come up with our own way. Well, Let me tell you, that's probably not going to work out like you think it is. You see, even in getting people to question these most basic things... Satan is sowing confusion and deception and division into people's lives. Consider today some of the confusion that our children are having to live through. You and I never had to deal with any of this. Most of you grew up in the golden age of American history and you didn't realize it until you got older and you saw things falling apart. Now you recognize what you had. But our children are facing decisions and deception and lies like never before. Consider some of the confusion today. According to Facebook, listen to this, users setting up their profiles can choose 56 different options when it comes to gender. Hey, my Bible just says there's two. Some of these choices. I don't even know what some of these mean. Trans, cisgender, intersex, non-binary, pansexual. If you have to have a dictionary to understand what it is, Guess where it's from? Just this week, Apple. This makes me not even want to have an Apple phone. Apple added, listen, the pregnant man and gender neutral emojis to their iPhones. There it is pictured right there. It's going to be a nightmare for public school teachers going forward. Because some of the state legislatures right now are debating bills on whether educators will be required to refer to their students by their selected pronouns. Here's a, a headline just from the state legislature in Tennessee. Tennessee lawmakers discussing bill focusing on gender pronouns in schools as if our teachers didn't have enough to already worry about. 
They got to worry about misassigning a gender to a child. Netflix. I hope you've canceled Netflix by now. Netflix has a series now called He's Expecting. No wonder they're losing subscribers every single day by the thousands. And you know what? It started subtly, didn't it? It started in the 1960s with the free love generation. Make love, not war. And then it built in the 1980s and 90s with the, the, the gay coalition. And then in 2015, we saw the Supreme Court of the United States make gay marriage legal. And then they paraded through the streets and they lit up the White House and the, the colors of that flag. And they, we thought, okay, they finally got what they wanted. But how many of you know it doesn't stop there? Then it was bathrooms of your choice. Then it became Pride Month, the month of June. And now we have Drag Queen Story Hour and we have Pick Your Own Pronouns. And you have to ask yourself, what is next? What haven't they got to to take the labels off? Probably pedophilia. I know it sounds crazy. But that's where we're going as a society. Because we've lost our minds. Because we've been attacked by the enemy and not even known it. Sin always digresses into darker and more perversive forms of evil. If you give the devil an inch, he will become your ruler. And one of Satan's most useful and willing tools to do this kind of dirty work is the political arm of Marxist and socialist ideologies that have infiltrated our country. Can we open our eyes and understand that we've been invaded by an enemy? He's not crying Alu Akbar. He's Marxist in his thought. Divisive in his thought. Demonic in his ideology. Did you know that Karl Marx viewed the family as a barrier to government control? If you haven't studied Marxism, you need to. Because that's what's driving a lot of the, the uh, trash going on in our country right now. But Karl Marx, he saw the family as something that needed to be dissolved. Why? Because he believed that the family needed to be dismantled so that children could belong to the state. And when children belonged to the state, then they could be indoctrinated into that evil form of thinking. He also said you need to dismantle the children and separate and isolate the children from the parents because then you can take inherited wealth and redistribute it. That's where all this is coming from. In fact, in his book, We Will Not Be Silenced, Dr. Erwin Lutzer explains how this evil Marxist agenda that's going on right now in our culture and in our schools and in our governments has as our primary target our children. Listen to what he writes. He says, quote, Perhaps nowhere do we see the work of Satan in America as clearly as we do in the sexualization of children. Destroying their identity, confusing their gender, and creating unresolved guilt. The goal of the radical left is clear. Attack any form of decency, sacredness, or normal sexual relations. Confuse the children by awakening sexual desires reserved for adults and utterly destroy any concept of the traditional family. He goes on. Encourage children to have multiple sexual experiences and in the process reap the consequences. More abortions, more atheism, and more importantly, more broken homes. This, he says, is a tactic straight from the Marxist playbook, 
the more children are alienated from their parents, the more they can be shaped by the state and Marxist principles. Friend, I hope you're paying attention this morning. It is critical that we understand as a family and as a church who is really behind this deception in our nation. Yes, this is a multi-front conflict. There's a cultural aspect to it. There's a political front. There's an educational front. But the five-star general who's behind it all is the deceiver, is the serpent. It's Satan himself. And this means, listen church, if we hope to stand a chance in this struggle, if you hope to keep your family together, if you hope to survive... You have to fight on all fronts and most importantly, the spiritual front. These things cannot be cast out by any other way than prayer and fasting, Jesus said. Through prayer, through knowing Bible truth. And you know what Ephesians 5.11 tells us? Ephesians 5.11 tells us that we who are walking in the light are to expose the ungodly works of darkness. That's why I'm preaching this message today. The time has come for the majority of us who still have a shred of sanity and biblical foundation left to reject this garbage, to kick it out of our schools, out of our homes, out of our culture, and stand up and resist against this movement and call it for what it is. It's not just an alternative lifestyle, friends. It's wicked. It's demonic. It's a tool of Satan used to destroy this country and tear apart your family. And I'm calling pastors with some backbone once again to stand up, open up the Word of God. It's right there in black and white. It's pretty simple. It's male and female. The family was God's design. Sex is God's idea. Let's get back to the book. And we can have family and harmony in our society. And friend, listen to me. I'm not about to participate in somebody's delusional fantasy. You know, when you're dealing with a drug addict, they call it enabling. You think you're helping them, or you, but, but, you're, but you're really doing worse by helping them? Well, you know what? With this transgender thing, I'm not helping them by participating in this delusion. And the world just doesn't rearrange itself. The universe doesn't rearrange itself to suit however you feel on that day. Somebody help us restore some common sense to our leadership and to our schools and to our churches once again. Hey, God designed marriage. God designed family. God designed sex. And if we think that we know better than Him, oh brother, are we in for trouble? You know, when you buy a car, you get sent home with an instruction manual. You read the instruction manual, it says put oil in it. Well, if you say, no, I'm not going to do that, I'll put molasses in it. Well, they're going to tow you home. God spelled out in the instruction book what family's supposed to look like, what sex is supposed to look like, what children and moms and dads are supposed to do. I'm following the Creator's design, friend. That's the demonic or the devilish attack on the family. We need to understand it for what it is, friends. We can't play games with this stuff anymore. We've got to get it out of our schools. We've got to get it out of our classrooms, out of our homes. And restore the biblical model that God has given us. Number two, I want you to see this this morning. Okay, pastor, I understand where the attack's from, but so what? What do I do? Number two, I want you to see this. The defensive actions for the family. 
You say, well, well, preacher, I don't have a family. Well, you should care. You know why? Even though children are not 100% of our population, they are 100% of our future. Well, the day is coming when you and I will age out and the generation now that doesn't know whether they're a boy or a girl is going to be calling the shots one day and running for office. And so we ought to be caring about what's going on with our children right now. Even if you don't have children or, or grandkids, this is something that involves every one of us. So I want you to be clear this morning. The opposition that churches and families are facing is intense. It's light versus dark. It's good versus evil. It's freedom versus tyranny. And we'll not be able to turn the tide overnight. We, I don't, I'm not under any delusions. We will not experience total victory through politics or clever marketing or any of those strategies of the world. But we're going to have to live like Daniel in Babylon. We're going to have to be like Paul in the city of Athens. We are the underdogs. We are uh, against a culture. Listen to what they have. They have corporate power. They have billionaire money. They have political clout. They have media coverage. They have educational indoctrination. But you know what they don't have? They don't have the truth of the Word of God. And this has been time-tested, tried, and proven. And if um, a few of us will stand on the Word of God, and stand for what's true and what's right no matter what the culture labels us or no matter what they throw at us, I believe that God will honor the remnant of people who still hold fast to His Word. So what is our defense this morning? Our defense, listen to me, is to adopt tiny acts of resistance. I'm not going along with this stuff. Here's how I'm going to resist. First off, we must treasure children. We must treasure children. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10. This is coming up on your screen. And they were bringing children to him, verse 13, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And truly I say unto you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them into his arms and he blessed them, laying hands upon them. You see, the disciples thought they were doing Jesus a favor by rebuking the people from bringing their kids to, to Jesus. But Jesus didn't think of them that way. He thought of them not as a burden but as a blessing. And Jesus made it clear that God has a special love for children. And he took time out of his busy ministry and out of, out of his schedule for them. Some people think the way that you spell love to a child is M-O-N-E-Y. Just give them everything they want. Take them on trips and buy them the newest, best, and latest. But you know how Jesus defined love for the children? T-I-M-E. Give them time. Make them a priority. Teach them, shape them, bless them, treasure them. I'm about to get on a soapbox. Is that okay with you? Friend, we live, listen to me, we live in a society where all we hear about is tolerance, equity, diversity, and inclusion. But that's a bunch of hogwash. The culture does not believe that. Do you know how I know that? Because when it comes to the most vulnerable population of all, the unborn, they say, well, we don't even give them the time to exist. They're just an inconvenience to my freedom. They're unwanted. Friend, let me correct something this morning. There is no such thing as an unwanted child. Let's get that out of our minds. There are certainly some unqualified parents. 
But there is no such thing as an unwanted child. It's precious in His sight. Red, yellow, black, and white. Precious in His sight. Do you know what the price of a life is today? Our culture does not treasure children. The price of a baby today, $450. That's how much the average cost of an abortion is today. $450. Since 1973, 61 million lives and counting have been aborted. Listen, friend, that's the average of 1,100 lives extinguished every single day. 61 million. That's a lot for us to try and put our minds around. But look at this map. 61 million, that's roughly the equivalent of the populations of 19 U.S. states. Here they are in red. Oregon, Nevada, Idaho, Colorado, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, New Mexico, Nevada, North and South Dakota, Kansas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, Minnesota, Missouri, and Iowa. That's how many lives we've extinguished in the name of quote-unquote pro-choice. I don't care what label you put on it. God says it's murder. God says it's the killing of an innocent life. God says, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. I knit you together. I don't care what label our society puts on it. It's evil. It's wicked. We have no excuse today. In this modern age of ultrasound technology, we know the miracle of life, don't we? Look at this. A conception, at conception, a new genetic code is created that's never before been existed. 23 chromosomes from the father. 23 chromosomes from the mother. Do you know that a single cell contains more genetic information than 50 sets of Encyclopedia Britannica? The living library. The DNA that God wrote into you and to me. And we would just cast it aside like trash. 18 days from conception. Listen to this. The heart in the baby begins to beat. The baby begins to have its own blood. At eight weeks, all the baby's organs are functional. At nine weeks, a baby has its own individual fingerprint. At ten weeks, a baby can begin to feel pain. And at twelve weeks, listen to this, a baby can smile. I don't care what they tell me. It's not just a clump of cells. If it took a human father and a human mother to come together, then how can it be less than anything other than a human being with life, with potential, with God-given ability? Friend, in this country, we go out of our ways to protect a bald eagle and the elm tree and the monarch butterfly, and yet we won't give the unborn the same value of life. God help us in this country to repent of this grievous evil in our land. We have to treasure children and realize that they're not just some possession. They're not just something to throw out, throw away or throw by the wayside. But that this is our future. 1994, Mother Teresa was invited to Washington, D.C. to attend the annual prayer breakfast under then President Clinton. Standing before some of the world's most powerful politicians, this Humble, diminutive lady from Calcutta gave these words. Listen to this. Still true today. She said, quote, I feel that the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion because it is a war against the child, a direct killing of the innocent child, murder by the mother herself. She said, and if we accept that a mother can kill even her own child, how can we tell other people not to kill each other? 
Please don't kill the child, she said. I want the child. Please give me the child. I am willing to accept any child and help find a loving home for that child. She said, if we remember that God loves us, then we can learn to value all lives, even those yet unborn. And I say to that, Amen. Church, if we're to be the hands and feet of Jesus, then that ought to be our mentality as well. We as a church with open arms say, give me the child. Give me the child that's in the broken home or the, the terrible situation. Give me the child who's unwanted. Give, give me the child and I'll do what I can. You see, voting pro-life is really easy. And isn't it interesting that every year we do this, we vote. Every four years we come around that cycle, we vote pro-life, pro-life, pro and nothing ever changes. Because when it gets in the hands of politicians, there's money, there's power, there's influence, there's all the things that can make them sway. It's easy to vote pro-life, and you should, in my opinion, but we as a church open our doors and open our lives to the unwanted, neglected children. James 1.27 says this, quote, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Let me tell you a little story. When I first became youth pastor here, we had a little problem come up with one of the ladies in the church. She started complaining to me that all those kids coming on Wednesday night were loud. Some of them were pretty badly behaved because they come from bad home situations. You can expect that, right? They've never been to church in their life. They're not quiet little angels. They're dirty. And some of those kids were running up and down the hall, running their, their hands up and down the wall and leaving dirty handprints all over the wall. And this lady came to me and she was upset about these noisy children, these dirty children, these misbehaving children. And you know what? When she brought that to me, you know what I said to her? I said, praise God. Amen. Praise God. We can clean the walls. We can repaint the walls. But uh, I'm willing to accept that off for the inconvenience of having the opportunity to make an eternal impact on the life of a young person. Hey, would you rather have a pristine church that looks like a cotton field and be dead in five years? Or would you rather have messes and fidgety little bodies and children that get up and run around and go to the bathroom and disrupt service? Hey, I'd rather have that than have a church that's going to be dead in a few years because we don't love children. Hey, I want, I want signs of life. You bring the children. You run the bus. You go pick them up. You bring them in here. We'll love them. We'll feed them. We'll do all that we can to teach them about the Lord Jesus Christ and that they are special, that God made them, that Jesus loves them. They have a hope. They have a future. They don't have to live the way that their parents did or fall to the schemes of the devil, but they can have a life in Jesus Christ. Church, let's love the children. Let's love them. Secondly, we must train our children. Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. God has designed two critical institutions for leading children. It's the home and the church. Amen? 
In fact, both of those are inseparably linked. Both are given by God to help raise and nurture and instruct children. The home is where the first seeds of the faith are planted in those tender hearts. And the church is where those seeds are then watered and nurtured until they mature and come to faith in Christ. Now listen to this. The church's role is never to supplant the role of parents. It's to support the role of parents. I can't be with you, Mom. I can't be with you, Dad, to go home with you, to pray with your children, to open the Bible and read the Word of God to them, to model for them right and righteous behavior. That has to start in the home. And we have to have a generation that will rise up and say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to the house of God on Wednesday night and Sunday morning. We're going to make our home a sanctuary and we're going to raise our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. It's a decision that you have to make as a parent. And I know I'm there with you. It doesn't happen easily. <laughs> if there's ever a problem, bless God, it's on Sunday morning. And I, I get here, I'm usually the first one here. And friend, it's hard getting three little ones up out of bed and getting them ready and getting them dressed and getting them fed and getting them here. But we can do it. And you can do it. And you can get your grandkids and the little neighborhood kids and whoever else. And you can do it. You can bring them to hear the Word of God. And as families grow and mature through different stages, you know what happens? The church body is replenished. You see, because there's a, a reciprocal relationship that exists between the home and the church. What's taught at the home is then reinforced at the church. What's taught at the church is then reinforced at the home. And they feed off of each other. And when you have a family committed to that, oh friend, it's, it's powerful. And I thank God every day. I wake up and I thank God. Lord, thank you for letting me be born in the home of 49 Sam's Branch Road with Joe and Linda McCarson as my mom and dad. I hit the absolute spiritual jackpot. And I know it. Not everybody gets that. I grew up in a home where mom and dad loved each other. I caught my parents praying. I caught them reading the Word of God. They took. I had a drug problem. I was drugged to church three times a week. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Bless God. And when I got out of line, Daddy pulled out the belt and let me know that he was still boss. And then I'd run to Mama and say, Mama, you know what Daddy did to me? Just joking. My mom and dad were always on the same team. Could never pull anything over either one of them. But I'm telling you, that's a blessing. I look back on that as an adult and I think, you know what? Praise God. That's grace in my life. I understand that not everybody has that today. And if you didn't have that, guess what? When you have your family, you can have that. You can break the pattern. And you can raise your children in a different way. And Jesus will help you. And the church, this church will help you, equip you. The question that so many parents are asking today is this. How do we lead our children in a culture that's gone wild? How do I talk to my kid, Pastor? They're going to school and they're hearing this. Or their friend on the bus tells them this. Or there's a child in their class that's, that's gay or transgender or whatever. How do I talk to my kid? We're having to talk to our kids sooner and sooner about these things, aren't we? So what do I say? Well, the Bible is the answer book. The fundamentals of the faith... The Bible teaches us about sex, marriage, and the family. And friend, listen to me. If we don't do this, 
If we're not proactive in this, the culture, the school, the social media, they will be glad to confuse your child. We have to be proactive in training our kids in righteousness and showing them what God's design is. So what do we teach our kids? I want to give you just very briefly, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but just some bullet points. And again, all this is age sensitive. You know what age and what level of development your child is at and what they understand and the issues they're dealing with. As they get older, you go into more depth. But you start as they're young. And what do you teach them? Well, first off, you teach them that every human being is created in the image of God. You teach them that God loves all people despite their skin color, their social standing, their political beliefs, or their religion. There's not many races. There's just one race. It's the human race. Then you teach your kids this. God only made two sexes, male and female. This is not a hard debate, is it? It's really easy. Boy or girl, men and women are created different by design. And listen to this. God didn't make a mistake when he made them a boy or a girl. We need to teach them this as they get older. Sex is God's idea. God came up with that. Not the culture, not Hollywood, not Lady Gaga. God came up with this thing called sex. It is His gift to husband and wives to be enjoyed within the confines of committed marriage between a man and a woman. And God's purpose for sex is, number one, to nurture the love between a husband and wife, and number two, procreation, to further the family. It's crazy that we even have to preach this basic stuff today, but that's where we are in this world, amen? Sex is God's idea. And friend, I use the illustration of the fireplace. The fireplace is designed for one thing, right? To keep the fire. And when the fire is in the fireplace, it does a lot for the home, doesn't it? There's warmth. There's light. It's inviting. It creates ambiance. All of those good things. But when the fire gets outside the fireplace, oh brother, it can burn the whole house down, can't it? God created this beautiful thing called sex and He said, keep it within the boundaries that I have set. And as long as it's there, it's a blessing. It's nurturing. It's fruitful. It's beautiful. But old friend, when you get it outside the fireplace, it can burn the family down. It can burn the state down. It can burn the whole nation down. That's where we are. We need to teach them this. Since God creates the rules for life at any time, when we break the rules, we suffer the consequences of sin. Any form of sex outside of marriage, the Bible says, is sin and will bring us pain, heartache, whether that's sex before marriage, pornography, homosexuality, adultery. We need to show them this. The Bible teaches that men and women should strive for sexual purity, to flee from sexual immorality, to keep themselves for their future husband and wife. I don't say this in boasting, but I'm, I am so glad that I was able to enter my marriage a virgin. It's a great ble- It was a great gift I was able to give my bride and likewise for her to me. Strive for that. And if you've already fallen in that area, look at this last one. In the event that we do fall into sexual sin, we should repent and turn to Jesus for forgiveness. We should ask the Holy Spirit to help us to resist That temptation, no matter what sin you've committed or what sin has been done to you in this regard, listen to me, God still loves you. 
God still wants you. God can save you. He can restore you. He can redeem you. And yes, God loves these folks who are questioning, who are doubting, who are in these immoral lifestyles, transgender, gay. Hey, I don't look at that when I look at a person. I see somebody that Jesus died for. I see somebody that God has a plan and wants to save them and restore them and redeem them. And we love them to the cross. Yes, we teach them the truth, but we show them, hey, the God of the universe sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for your sin and rise again, and you can change. Amen? I'm finished with this. Lastly, we must talk to God about our children. We must train our children. We must treasure children. We must talk to God about our children. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words I command you today shall be on your heart. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you are lie down and when you rise. Friend, this is called the Shema in the Hebrew culture. This was the creed of the Jewish people. And this was God's curriculum for the families in Israel. They were to be permeated by the Word of God, by prayer. They were to teach this to their children. They were to show them the way. They were to pray this. And they were to make it part of their family life. Here's the last thing I want to say to you. Our children desperately need Praying mamas and daddies. Praying grandmas and papas. Praying Sunday school teachers and youth workers. Because they are facing challenges today that you and I could hardly ever imagine when we were growing up. Preacher, what do I pray about? Number one, pray for your child's salvation, your grandchild's salvation. Pray for that prodigal teen. Pray for that prodigal 20-something. Don't stop praying for them. Hey, the reason I'm standing to you in front of you today preaching is because I had a praying mom and daddy who said, Devil, you can't have my children. Satan, you can't have my family. You can't have my school, my church, my classmate, my prodigal son or daughter and pray for them that God would save them. Pray that they would be able to stand strong against the devil. Pray that they would have the moral courage to do the right thing and pray for their future spouse. Pray that God would use their life to glorify Christ. Two illustrations and I'm almost done. Robert Morgan in one of his books tells the story of a man named Wes Robinson. Listen to this. He stood up to share his testimony in the church service one morning. Here was his testimony. I was raised in a home with ten children. Me and my two brothers slept in the attic. The place where we slept was right over the spot where my parents prayed every night. When I was 11 years old, he said, I listened to them pray for my salvation and my brothers for two weeks straight. I was so deeply affected that I cried myself to sleep. Then one Sunday I went to the altar and I prayed to receive Christ. And when the pastor asked, why have you come forward? I said, I have been led to Christ by the prayers of my parents. What a testimony. A few weeks ago, I was out in the community 
and I ran into a young man. I didn't recognize him at first because I hadn't seen him in a while. He came up and he introduced himself. He said, hey, Pastor Derek, I'm so-and-so. I said, oh my goodness, it's been so long. I said, tell me what's going on in your life. He said, Pastor, he said, I want you to know, I'm so thankful for Liberty Baptist Church and the ministry that this church had in my life. You see, this young man, he came up through our youth group. He came from a bad home situation. There was drugs involved. He had really a hellish situation that he grew up in. But he got involved in the youth group here. And every time the doors were open, he was there to eat some. He was there to play basketball. He was there for the lesson. They went on a youth retreat, and glory to God, God got a hold of him. He got saved on that youth trip. A few years ago, he was baptized right there. Ran into him in the community. He said, he said Derek, I, I want to thank you so much for the, the ministry of that church made a difference in my life. Today, he's, he's, he's at another church. He's serving the Lord. I said, what's going on in your life? He said, I'm getting ready to get married here in a couple months. He said, and I'm in Bible college. He said, I'm training and I'm learning to be a preacher. <laughs> Glory to God. And when I heard that, I thought, that's why I do it. That's why you do it, Sunday school teacher. That's why you do it, youth worker. That's why we do what we do. Because you never know later on down the line when you may meet one of those little kids that was in your class or that ran around this church or that got baptized up here. You may cross paths with them and understand the impact that the Word of God and Jesus Christ had on their life. And it happens right here. So when you worship, when you give, when you serve, it matters. It made a difference to that young man. And I praise God for it. I wonder today, Maybe the best thing that we need to do is we need to pray for our kids today. Amen? Any that can and will, as Preston comes and as our invitation is given, if you feel so led, if you've got kids or grandkids or neighborhood kids or somebody that you're burdened for, let's pray for them. Let's pray for our teachers who are dealing with this stuff in the schools. Let's pray for our church that we would be able to fulfill this this great commission that God has given us.